want to let everybody know real quick that um, we have a team in Africa today. We have a team in, in Burundi um, leading and, and teaching other pastors. Um, that team is being led by our senior pastor, David Munitsky. He's joined by Ruth Ann Lind, our music director here at the church, um, Clarence Bray, Clarence's daughter, Julie Patterson, and Adam Frazier. And uh, it's just a real blessing to be led by people who not only talk the talk, but, but walk the walk. So if you will, I'd like to lift them up in prayer real quick, if you'll join me. Father God, we bless you for David and Ruth Ann and Clarence and Julie and Adam. And we know that you brought them to Burundi um, for a purpose. And we want to stand in agreement with it. We want you to pour out all kinds of blessings through them. And we want you to pour out all kinds of blessings on them. And we know that we can't physically walk with them and follow them today where they go, um, but that they're going to cut a path and that they're going to come back with that blessing and they're going to come back with a, with a place for us to follow. And I pray that we'll be able to open our hearts and minds and go where they're going to be able to lead us as a result of what you're doing through them and with them in Africa right now. We pray your safekeeping, your protection on them uh, and bring them back to us safely. In Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, The Noonday Demon, John Blackwell tells the story of the Bridges family. In 1960, Charlene Bridges was a resident of New Orleans, and she was asked to, let, asked to consent to let her daughter, Ruby, become the first black child to attend France Elementary School as part of the desegregation of schools there. After much prayer, Charlene agreed because she felt that God was calling her family to serve in such a way. She tried to impress upon her six-year-old daughter the importance of what was going on. Ruby's attendance at France Elementary School so angered the white community that they withdrew all their children from the school, and Ruby attended school that year alone. <clears throat> Ruby was never alone, however, on her walk to and from school. She was always escorted by federal marshals, and it was their job to protect her from the angry crowds that would shout death threats and insults at the six-year-old as she walked to school. One morning, the crowd was so angry that Ruby's at Ruby's presence that the marshals feared they were going to have to draw their firearms. In the middle of all that venom and hatred, surrounded by people who wanted to scare her away and those who wanted her dead, Ruby stopped and seemed to say something to the crowd. Although the crowd couldn't hear her above their own noise, the fact that she would stop and in seeming defiance of their threats dare to speak to them angered them even more. And their rage overflowed and she was quickly whisked into the school. Robert Coles was a pediatric psychologist from Harvard at the time and he became interested in Rudy's, Ruby's situation and wanted to get to know her and her family. He learned of the disturbance that she caused that day when she paused in front of the angry mob. And he asked Ruby what made her stop. Ruby told him that she had stopped to pray. She told Dr. Coles that each morning she said her prayers and always included prayers for the people in the crowd. And on that day, in the middle of the sidewalk, she suddenly remembered that she hadn't prayed yet that morning. She stopped right then and there, surrounded by her oppressors, and prayed. Coles asked Ruby what she had prayed in that moment, 
and her answer stunned him. Please, please, God, try to forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. Coles was astonished that such a prayer would come from a six-year-old whose life was in danger from the very people for which she was praying. Ruby and her family were at risk, physically, racially, educationally, culturally, economically. And in spite of all that great risk, Ruby displayed this strength. Coles had to learn where it came from. He had to know what motivated her. In his research, he found one answer, her church. The Bridges family went to church every Sunday, and their lives were lived and expressed out of their local church. I have to say, this was not a comfortable, air-conditioned, get-you-out-in-one-hour kind of church. This was a uh, hard-praying, witnessing, responding, testifying kind of church. These people knew their Bibles. They knew the stories of Moses and Ruth and Jeremiah, and they knew Jesus. According to Dr. Coles, the most important aspect of Ruby's church was that they knew the stories as a congregation. They didn't just know the stories of the Bible. They believed themselves to be connected to them. Their stories were part of God's story. How does a community become the kind of community that believes, worships, and lives that way so much so that their six-year-olds stand on sidewalks and do such things? What is the foundation for a faith that's that connected? Exodus 12 gives us the Lord's first instructions on how the community should worship. This will be a day for you to always remember. I want you and all generations after you to commemorate this day with a festival to me. Celebrate the feast as a perpetual ordinance, a permanent part of your life together. I submit to you this morning that Ruby's church is an example of a community that's trying to walk, that was trying to walk into the Lord's instructions of Exodus 12. And I think if we look closely, we might see that obedience to the Lord's instructions here can be played out in three ways. Can we, we can see this in three ways. The first way is remembering. We remember the story of God. This text that we read this morning that the worship team shared with us from Exodus 12 specifically invites us to remember, to rehearse and relive the story. Last spring, some of us in here were able to celebrate the Passover Seder. The Passover tradition, that that Seder, comes from this very text that we're studying this morning. And we came in here and we had a meal as much as we could through the guidelines that are represented here. And we retold the story, all the plagues, all the details of all the plagues, all the things that the Lord had done. And there's even a point in that tradition, in that Seder, where a child stands up and says... Why do we do these things? Why is tonight different from any other night? And then there's response to that, to educate and to remember what's going on. So why do we remember? I think we could probably sit in here and come up with a lot of reasons, so this isn't a comprehensive list. But I'll give you a couple of things that I've been able to come up with. First off, when we remember, we're presented with a God of verbs and not a God of adjectives. I, I live with an English teacher, so I, I have that kind of stuff at the ready. But um, if you, let me explain that a little bit. 
A God of adjectives would be a God when we say God is awesome. God is powerful. God is wonderful. Those are adjectives. And those statements are true. God is awesome. God is wonderful. God is powerful. But those statements don't tell us why. The stories that are told in the Bible, the way that people speak of the Lord in the Bible, and when we remember, we're presented with the God of action, a God of verbs, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, why he's awesome, why he's powerful. So we get this God of verbs. Another thing that we get when we remember is we get a lens through which to see the cosmic story. That God's telling. If we take one story out of the Bible by itself and isolate it, it doesn't reveal the whole. It tells us part. But if we start to connect all those stories and even put our stories into that, we start to see this overarching cosmic story that comes into focus that tells us who God is and who we are. I had a Torah prof in seminary, um, Torah just means it was, a, it was a class that studied the first five books of the Bible. And we spent a year in there, and on the first day of class, he came in and he asked everyone, raise your hand if you're a Christian. And everybody raised their hand. And then he said, raise your hand if, keep your hand up if you feel like you fully grasp the weight of the crucifixion. And at this point, me sitting in the back, not wanting to be noticed, I, my hand comes down and I'm like, please don't notice me. I don't, I wouldn't say that I fully grasp, but some of my classmates kept their hands up. And then he said, and keep your hand up if you fully grasp the weight of the Exodus. And all the hands went down. And I was like, I told y'all he's looking for a target. (laughs) He's looking for somebody to make an example out of. And then he said to us, you cannot fully grasp the weight of the crucifixion without first understanding the story of the Exodus. They are connected. It is the story of God delivering his people from slavery into freedom. And the stories are connected so much so that the artist, forgive me if you're an art person because I'm not, I really, really want to be. So if somebody wants to train me, I would love to learn this kind of stuff. This is Chagall. Did I say that right? Anybody? Okay. Um, this painting is actually called the Exodus. And you can see on the bottom right-hand corner here, we have Moses in the, in the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And some of the plagues are being acted out on the left side here. And, of course, we have the people that are being... They're being delivered. They're leaving. But in the middle of all of these images from the Exodus is Jesus on his cross. Chagall saw this as one story, not two separate stories that aren't connected. It was one story. Remembering doesn't just another thing that we receive is remembering gives us memory in the place of history. We don't just remember these things so that we can educate. We don't retell these stories so we can just get the facts straight. We tell these stories to convert and shape our community. We tell them because it invites us to see ourselves as these people, to be connected with these people that actually experienced the first exodus. We tell it so that we can be changed by it and prepared to be these people right now, right here. 
not surprising to most of you, when we engage God, when we do something like remember, we're going to end up receiving. And that's the second part of this. When we remember, we receive. And again, this isn't a comprehensive list. We could probably stay in here all day and talk about all the things that we have received from the Lord. But a couple of the things that we receive when we engage this story, when we retell this story, is the first thing is we receive the miracle. We're connected to, we can access God's miraculous acts. The original supernatural delivering power that brought all the plagues, that delivered the Israelites from Egypt, that parted the Red Sea, is available to us right here, right now. This is not an abstract thought. If we retell this story, we see a story that engages all of the senses, right? There's very specific instructions about this lamb and how to raise it and how to kill it, how to eat it, how you observe these things. We, there's sights and smells and sounds and touch and taste. It's a very tangible story. The Lord is trying to give us an opportunity to connect directly to the miracle. As I said, this is not history, it's memory. One of the stories that our, our Rabbi David likes to tell is the story of Fred Craddock, who was one of his um, mentors, someone that he looked up to. Still does. They're, they're both still alive. I didn't mean to say that in the past tense. Um, Fred tells the story of being in Israel for the first time on, to, on a tour, an educational tour, and he's being led around by a tour guide, and the tour guide starts talking about a battle. And he starts saying things like, well, and then we hid over here behind these rocks and we attacked from this direction. And Fred Craddock thinks, oh, he must be talking about the Six Days War that took place in 1967. Because the guy's speaking in the first person. And he asks him, is this the Six Day War? And the guy says, no, this is the Maccabean War, which took place in 160 B.C. That Israelite tour guide saw that story as his story. We hid behind these rocks. We attacked from this direction. He was connected to it. Second thing that we receive is we receive the meal. This is an easy thing to receive, right? We all love a good feast. We get to receive each other in community because a feast is a communal act. We get to receive each other's stories and exchange them. We get to receive good food and good drink. But it's not just that. The Lord is very specific in this text here. So that when we receive the meal, we also receive instruction. How to raise and cook and eat the lamb. We receive, for lack of a better word, a ritual. A ritual that we are asked and called to engage. This is what the Lord says right here. Here is how I want you to eat this meal. Be sure you are dressed and ready to go at a moment's notice with sandals on your feet and a walking stick in your hand. Eat quickly because this is my Passover. The Lord's giving very specific instructions, ritual instructions to be followed. He says, even in a time of haste, even when it seems like your world is closing in on you and you've got to be ready to go in case Pharaoh does something, against you grab your walking stick get your sandals on be ready to go but stop and make time for ritual stop and engage this Diana pointed out this morning as she's preaching on the same text 
that this is not the only place this happens. The stories of the Bible constantly remind us, make time and engage the ritual. And Dinah pointed out that on the night that he was arrested, the last moments that he had with his disciples, when he could have preached a great sermon or taken them one by one and laid hands on them and anointed them and blessed their ministry, he didn't do any of that. He engaged the ritual. He celebrated the Passover. His last act with his assembled disciples was to celebrate the Passover. For many of us, this idea of ritual carries baggage. And I'm kind of one of those, all right? I understand. So if you're feeling that way, even that word kind of makes you uncomfortable in your seat, you come by that honestly, okay? We're Protestants. We've been working on this for a long time, hundreds of years. Um, And our Protestant reformers who led us in this direction rejected a lot of ritual. And they threw out a lot of it. And we come to this place where we might be uncomfortable talking about this. But the reality is we all have rituals. We might not have religious rituals. But we all have a ritual that we observe maybe when we go to bed at night. Or what we do when we wake up in the morning. Or how we spend our Saturdays. Or what we do at a Spurs game. I mean, there's rituals. We all engage them. These biblical rituals, rightly told, rightly observed, they just tell the story of God. They just invite us into a place of remembering and receiving. And I would submit to you humbly that perhaps part of our weakness as a church, and I don't mean just this church, I mean the church, part of our weakness might be tied to our rejection of ritual. When we reject ritual, when we throw it out, we lose part of the story. And when we lose part of the story, we lose that lens that we were talking about earlier that allows us to see what God is doing. And that's what allows us to receive God as a God of action, a God of verbs. And when we remove that and we reduce God to a God of adjectives, what we're left with is a God that seems detached and irrelevant. And we can go proclaim to the world, God is awesome. And they go, why? I don't get it. We've got to tell those stories. We have to tell what God has done. Engage these rituals. The last thing that we received that I could come up with was, is the memorial. We receive signs and symbols, guides and encouragements in these stories that are memorialized. And this is not surprising. This is throughout the Bible, right? We raise our Ebenezer. We build an altar of stones. We mark our doors with blood. We eat a feast of unleavened bread. We're all used to seeing these symbols. These are all symbols that are the memorial from these stories. we give you a modern example. I think we're probably all familiar with this symbol right here. You see a commercial on television, someone's on the phone in their kitchen and they're worried about their finances and they're talking to their very wise broker and the financial. And then suddenly a green line appears in the middle of their kitchen and they are startled by that. And they ask and the financial advisor says, well, that is your that is your line that leads you to financial freedom. Follow the line and everything will be okay." It's a symbol that we're very used to seeing and symbols. Symbols are very interesting. Symbol comes from the Greek word for symbol is symbolon. It's just two Greek words put together. Sim, which means together. 
and bolon, which meant a throwing or a casting. So you're throwing two things together. And a biblical symbol does the same thing. A biblical symbol takes God's story and throws it together with our story and holds them in tension to each other. Puts those two things collapsed into one spot. In fact, the sages taught that symbols were the place where the kingdom of heaven and the realm of earth was thin. Is the place where we could be the closest was through that symbol because it tied our story to God's story. This story in Exodus is, it's got a lot of symbols in it, but there's one big symbol that just keeps coming. And this is a symbol that's throughout the Bible and it's the symbol of blood. I know that's a little gruesome, but this story's got a lot of blood in it, right? There's a slaughter of this lamb and we take the blood and we put it on the doors. We eat the lamb. So in a sense, we're ingesting And while we're safe inside, the Lord's terrible, tangible presence is released. And there's blood in Egypt as the firstborn children are struck down and the firstborn livestock are struck down. So blood is is a big symbol in this story. But N.T. Wright points out that blood in the Bible is always a symbol of the self-giving love of God. So if we recast our green arrow, and I apologize if it's gruesome, but we make it into a blood arrow. And we point it back, reminding us to remember and receive. That's what's going on here. And the Lord says in this text in verse 13, this will be a sign for you. Every time I've heard this story taught... I've always either visualized or actually seen pictures of a Hebrew, right, standing outside his door, painting blood on the doorposts. The rabbis actually teach that the blood was on the inside of the door. And that makes sense if we think about it. The Lord had just brought nine plagues on Egypt, and he never needed the Hebrews to wear name tags. You know, they didn't have to raise a hand and say, hey, here come the locusts, remember, uh, Jew, no locusts for me. He, he doesn't, it's not for him. The Lord knows where they are. The Lord knows the players in the story. The sign was for them that they could create a sanctuary in their homes by putting blood around the door. They could create this space that reminds them who God is of his self-giving love and who they are and where they are, that they're safe, engaging the ritual, remembering the story while his presence is outside and it's not safe out there. When we remember and receive... Sorry, I was supposed to show you all this wonderful... Again, I, I want to be an art guy. This picture of the uh, presence of the Lord being released. When we remember and receive, we are given an opportunity then to release. Martin Luther has a great quote that I rip off all the time. He called himself a beggar, showing other beggars where he found bread. And that's what we are doing. When we remember the story and we receive the blessing of the story, we then have an opportunity to go out and tell other beggars... 
We found some bread, and you can get some too. We know where it is. First thing that we release is we release the divine context. We tell that cosmic story and give a context for our stories and the stories of others. The stories of God and the stories of the people of God shape how we see ourselves and understand our lives. James Blackwell is a professor and a United Methodist pastor in San Diego. He was reflecting with one of his classes and asked them how they would rather see themselves. Would they rather see themselves in a mirror or would they rather see themselves in a pool of water out in the woods? After they discussed and debated and went through it, this is what they concluded. When you see your reflection in the severe light of the bathroom, your reflection is harsh. All of you is reflected back to you at once, warts and all. We see ourselves as we are, and we frequently don't like what we see. But in a pool, we see a reflection that is miraculously modified or transformed by nature. The harshness is filtered out. Our reflection is more natural. We better fit our surroundings. It's not that we blend in in the sense that we cease to be individuals. But reflected in a pool, we belong with the pool and the trees and the rich blue sky and the soft light that is reflected in the pool. Our reflection in the pool also appears deeper than our reflection in the harsh bathroom mirror. Instead of looking at ourselves critically as we do in the mirror, we see ourselves at home in the world. That's the divine context. It's how we are supposed to see ourselves, connected to the greater picture. We release that context on our lives and we offer it to a world that doesn't have this story. Something else that we release is we release the perspective of a people who have been set free. When we remember and we receive, we are shaped into our identities as the daughters and sons of the Most High God. And we release that perspective of freed people on a world that doesn't always feel free. There is a Jewish scholar named Emil Fackenheim. And he was asked to describe how the Jewish people, in the face of the Holocaust, could retain their faith. How could they still believe in this God that delivered them after six million of them were murdered? And he came up with this phrase, midrashic stubbornness. Midrash is a Hebrew word that means to engage and interpret the stories of the Bible. To study them. And he said they have midrashic stubbornness because they know the story. And once you believe that you've been written into the story by the Most High God, no matter how the story goes, no matter how bad it gets, the circumstances, the discomfort, you have a stubbornness that tells you, I'm not going to be written out of this story. It might not be great right now, but when this thing is over, I'm there. And it ends up good. We can release Midrashic stubbornness as sons and daughters of the Most High God. The last thing that we release is we join God in releasing the kingdom of God on earth. We share our stories and God's stories. We share the miracles. We share the feasts. We share the love that has been shared with us. In doing so, we learn that obedience doesn't 
precede understanding. We don't have to make sense of it in order to engage it. In fact, in God's economy, it usually works the other way. Usually, first we do, and we learn in the doing. We learn in the living. Dinah pointed out this morning that the Israelites in this story, they knew God. But there was still so much about God that confounded them and confused them and was mysterious to them. The Life with God Bible says it this way. They rush from slavery to freedom, clutching gold and silver and bread dough that has no yeast, and there is little sign of comprehension. They stagger through the wilderness, facing mountains of thunder, commandments, cloud by day and fire by night. God is inexhaustible in his ways to surprise and awe. We stand on the shoulders of these people who engaged and observed the ritual even when they couldn't make sense of what God was doing. We actually have a clearer picture than they did because of what they have passed down to us. We still don't understand it all. We still have to take that step to say, I will obey, I will engage and remember and receive even when it doesn't make sense. I doubt that the ancient Israelites understood all the truth and implications that would come from their Passover obedience. I can't imagine that they knew by remembering the Passover each year, their relationship with God would cause God to leave his throne and come to them. They obeyed without knowing that their Savior would come and walk among them, teaching them, loving them, delivering them from captivity once and forever. They could never have guessed that nailed to the instrument of his death, Jesus would ask the Father to forgive those who tortured and crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A story that would be remembered and received forever. How could the people of the Exodus have understood that their obedience to remember, receive, and release would one day wind up on the faithful lips of a six-year-old girl who would stare at the angry mob of people that wanted her dead, that she would connect her story to God's story. Look at those who hated her and pray, please, please, God, try to forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. Because of her church and her family and all of the faithful that had gone before her, Ruby Bridges made the connection. She remembered, she received And she released the kingdom of God in the least likely of places. Now we have the opportunity to do the same. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we bless you for your story. We bless you for the story that you've been telling since time began, that you continue to tell now, and the story that you and only you will complete. We submit our stories, our lives to you and bless you that we can make sense of them in you, that we can follow and remember and receive so much blessing from you. And we accept the calling to take what we've received and release it to the world. We ask for your help to do that by your Savior's name, by our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. The worship team is going to offer a time of response and reflection now. Just invite you to experience that however works best for you.
You can sit, you can stand. If you need to leave, you can leave. Just ask that you do it quietly. Our prayer team members are going to identify themselves on the side and the back. If you need to pray with someone or just receive blessing or just talk to someone, this is a time and a space for that. Just invite you to experience this as the Holy Spirit is leading you.